Sometimes the most memorable stories we carry with us from military service were just the product of the branch of service we were in or the deployment we were on and the crazy stuff that happens when people with a mission and a common cause live in close quarters. And sometimes after our time in the service, we're lucky enough to find careers not too dissimilar to that with missions and with common cause for us to rally around. When we're lucky like that, we can continue to share stories of our shared history and experience and support one another through a bond that goes beyond the workplace. Jones Lang LaSalle and JLL's VetNet Business Resource Group brings you the MidWatch podcast in an effort to tell those stories and share that experience and build connections across generations of veterans at JLL and our broader community. And now the host, of the Midwatch Podcast, Dan Ediger. Hey everybody, you know what time it is. It's time for another episode of JLL's The Midwatch. Super excited. It's been a couple of weeks since I recorded, so uh, really excited to get back into the uh, into the saddle. We have an awesome interview lined up for today and really happy to bring the interview to you. Remember, make sure you're sharing this amongst your coworkers and sharing it with friends and family and all that kind of stuff. And please let me know if anybody else wants to appear on the show. This season's pretty much wrapped up now. So we'll be looking at, uh, at next season and definitely we'll be building towards Veterans Day, which is going to be fantastic. So please keep that in mind. And, uh, and let's go ahead and jump in with this week's uh, episode. So John Blasdell, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, I'll I'll uh, give everybody a peek behind the curtains that I'm I'm struggling with your last name for some reason. <laughs> so that's okay. It's all good. I don't, Lord knows how much I'll have to edit out when this is all done. It is uh, it is great to great to have you on the show. Thanks for reaching out about joining the the Midwatch. Really interested in hearing what your story is. No, I appreciate that. I, I probably would not have have done so if it wasn't for Josh Rojas who. Uh, I know from the Navy who absolutely was adamant that I needed to do this. Uh, and uh, so there you go. Even at this day and age, we're, we're separated with his uh, uh, retirement and yep. and uh, no longer in the same unit. He's still driving me. So it's a good thing. Uh, that's awesome. And now, so the drama is building. I'm going to be interested to hear if you have some incredible stories to tell. And we'll see where that, see if we get there. But before that even, Maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of where you're at in the world, you know, family, friends, hobbies, that kind of stuff. How are you keeping yourself busy nowadays? And if you have any great tips about what we've been through all together as a worldwide community getting through uh, quarantine stuff. So tell us about yourself. All right. Well, so I I'm, I live in uh, Orlando, Florida. I, I consider myself a long, long uh, lifelong Floridian, even though I've only lived in Florida for two years. We were my wife and I and our our youngest relocated down here almost uh, a little over two years ago. Came down here as a regional maintenance manager. I'm also currently serving U.S. Navy reservist and the senior chief petty officer assigned to Assault Craft Unit One out of Coronado, California, and. I have oversight with four detachments, one in Coronado, one in Great Lakes, one in Tampa, and one in Pensacola. So um, work closely with, with that organization on a regular basis as well. And um, have a wife who's a flight attendant with Southwest Airlines and a daughter who's a freshman in college, another who is a RNBSN up in Chicago. You know, pretty much all over the place at this point. It's funny because being in the maintenance world, I, I 
spend a lot of time talking about uptime and the reality is, you know, we never want downtime and it seems to be that way in my personal life as well. You don't get a whole lot of rest these days, especially with COVID and being on the Amazon account. Um, but from a hobbyist perspective, I probably the only hobby I have at this point outside of being a Navy reservist, and I call that a hobby loosely because it, it is more of a job, um, but yeah. I enjoy it. So I'll call it a hobby is spend a lot of time trying to bike on the weekends when I can. And then uh, probably the other big thing that, that we're into these days is modifying our Jeep Wrangler and having fun with that. Um, I've always been a big Jeep family and got away from it when we moved down here to Florida and have since recently gotten back into it and having some fun with that on the weekends as well. The interesting of uh, I was just connected with somebody who's really, really into their Jeep. So, so I'd yeah. never, uh, I'd never experienced this before. But you're really into your Jeep, is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. <laughs> you know, it's it, it's it's easy to it's easy to have fun with, and it, it's very user friendly. And there's all kinds of crazy things you can do with it. And, um, you know, I've I've gone the route in years past of of uh, lifting it and and putting massive wheels on it and, and just having a good time with it and um, as i've gotten older a little bit less of that and more on the practical mm -hmm. side but but it's still a lot of fun very cool so tell me this jeeps and uh how people get into into messing with and building their jeep and all that what's the, the craziest project you've done on your jeep like um, probably my, my my prior Jeep where, you know, we literally went all out and, and changed pretty much the entire structure of the vehicle with the lift kit and, mm -hmm. um, you know, larger wheels and tires and really yeah. built it out to the point that you could take it off road. The interesting part about me is I just like Jeeps. I've never taken one off road. So um, I'm, I'm that guy that if it gets dirty, I'm out there with a, <laughs> a sponge and a, a rag. And my wife, she's the, the, uh, She's my uh, polar opposite with regards to that. She'd leave the top off and, you know, yeah. not worry about it getting rained on or dirty. I'm, I'm completely the opposite. I don't want any dirt on it. It needs to be perfect. So, Well, I see these people doing like uh, rock climbing, right? Oh, yeah. So have the, uh, would, your, would your wife do that? Would she go rock climbing? She would. I probably, if she would, I probably wouldn't. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm too risk averse with things these days. Yeah, it would totally freak me out if uh, you, know, you see him going in between huge boulders and I'm thinking, what if like it just slips and now you've got this big ding on in the body work. You've got to, in the end, you got to fix that. It's not like you just leave it. Absolutely. Dollars. Yep, that's right. And so do they do, I, I'm, I'm a very, very amateur gearhead kind of person. So I know how a lot of stuff works, but there's no way I could ever touch it. So I know what a limited slip differential is. When you do a lot of off-roading, do you put limited slip differential in the front? Is that even an option? You know what? I, I honestly couldn't tell you. Um, I, I don't believe the Jeep's set up that way, but you know, it, it, that, that is, is not the level of my knowledge. I just like to drive. Can we, can we get your wife on the phone real quick and maybe check? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Very cool. And so how many, uh, I heard you talking about the kids. How many total kids? So I've got two. I've got two daughters. Um, one is uh, a freshman going into her sophomore year in college down here in Florida. We moved her while she was a senior in high school. And uh, our other is 26. She's actually up, back up in Chicago working on the uh, north side and dealing with all of the current pandemic and all of the, you know, trials and tribulations that have been associated with that thus far. Has she talked about your older daughter in the, in the nurse, you said nursing field, right? R yep. Uh, yes, correct. 
does she talk to you all a lot about some of the stuff that she is seeing? Like how hard has this all been on her in the medical profession? Yeah, so what's been really interesting, she had actually gotten injured rock climbing. Um, she's like her mom. She's more adventurous than I am and uh, had gotten injured in October and, and actually September last year and spent a bunch of time down here with, with us in Florida going, going through some surgeries to repair an ankle and getting herself yeah. back up on her feet. And she was pretty much back up and running in January and was recovering. And uh, she had been a travel nurse at that point. Got a call from the hospital that she used to be at in, I want to say it was early to mid-March, looking for her to come back. She was on the emergency side of things. And um, we, we put her on an airplane right really when the pandemic had just blown up and you know everybody mm -hmm. was in lockdown and sent her back up north. Yeah. And I think for her, it's been an eye-opener. I, I think um, to a certain degree, she's become more like me and being more risk-averse with things. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, I think she's become a little bit more um, realistic in, as far as what she's dealing with and that you can only do so much. You know, at the end of the day, you want everybody to be safe. You want to try and minimize the impact. And, you know, when she first got back up there, it was multiple masks and shields. And um, I, I think a lot of that has... I don't want to say gone by the wayside, but they, they've reduced some of the PPE to make it um, more realistic in some of the care that they're able to provide and with the hours that they're working. And, yeah. you know, I think overall it, it's made her more um, cautious, but I, I think she also is seeing things in a different light than she ever would have. That's for sure. So weird. Um, you know, uh, uh, I didn't know what I expected in you know, being a younger father when the kids were all young, but, you know, as you grow up and your kids become adults and all that kind of stuff, it's so strange, the, uh, the interaction and how stuff changes and how you see them dealing with real world problems and making their way in the world. I don't know if that'd be the same for you, especially with a, a daughter effectively, effectively on the front lines of, you know, the, the whole thing, but it's, uh, it's definitely interesting seeing kids grow up, right? It, it, it's crazy. I was actually talking to my dad about this the other day. He grew up in the 50s and 60s and, you know, they saw their their various um, historical events and the things that they've lived through. And, you know, certainly for our generation living through September 11th and the the, yeah. uh, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, we have our own stories to tell. And then, then you look at the at the the uh, the kids today and what they are going to be able to talk about. And, you know, I, I hope at the end of the day, this pandemic's the worst thing that they have to see. But just in comparison to how it's affected the world, it's unlike anything we had ever seen for sure. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I don't think they will ever truly understand the, um, just the historical impact of what we've gone through, whether it be, you know, just from a, an economic aspect or, or certainly yeah. just from a horrendous level, the impact it's had on, on health and even the future health of, of the world. I, I don't think they'll fully grasp it until years down the road, but, I, I tell my daughter, my youngest, that she has no idea what she's living through. And someday <laughs> they'll look back and they'll talk about the pandemic of 2020. Yeah. And, you know, for her, it's just it's what they're dealing with. But, you know, at some point they'll look back and realize what they've gone through. Yeah, it's a strange world that we're living in now. And speaking of strange, by the way, tell us something about yourself that no one would ever guess and stuff that you won't get in trouble for at work. Tell us something that we would never guess about you yep so i am the um i joined the navy about a year after september 11th as a result of september 11th and probably one of the reasons i never went into the military prior to that is i am the anti-exercise guy 
Okay. Um, you know, me running is typically because I'm being chased by something that I need to get away from. So um, I am the, um, you know, I exercise twice a year and it's because the Navy pretty much tells me I have to. So, you know, for me, um, having made it through 13 years at, at, or 12 years at the point that I got selected for chief petty officer, I, I had a feeling it was coming. I had a really good shot of getting selected and 2015 season was coming up. And my wife was, was very clear that you need to get in shape. This is not going to be an easy process if you get selected, especially being in the reserves and having to do that with your civilian work at the same time. So I had actually gotten myself to the point where I was out running four to five miles a day, which was something what? in my lifetime I never would have been able to uh, to do. And I don't know that I'll ever be able to do it again. But as I tell people that know me that don't know about the military and don't know about that process, most of them would probably laugh if, if they heard that I, I have that ability because I'm not who I am. And, I, and, and to this day, my sailors will, will actually ask me how I did it. But tell you what, if, it, if it's something you want to do or there's something you want to yeah. achieve, you just got to put yep. your mind to it. And for me, it was it was probably the lesser of two evils, either getting my butt kicked or figuring out how to take out of it. <laughs> how did your ankles and knees appreciate this uh, little adventure you went on? <laughs> You know what? I, when the season was over in September of 2015, it took probably 90 days to recover. I was just, I was done. So and I, of course, finished the season up thinking, well, I'm, I'm going to do this every day. I'm going to run every day. And uh, yeah, yeah that, that quickly went by the wayside with work and, and other obligations. And uh, yeah, right back into my original frame of mind. <laughs> that's, that's pretty cool. Four to five miles a day you were running. Yeah. Yep. I actually way. found myself enjoying it. So maybe, maybe at some point I'll get back there. We'll see. I'm no cartographer, but that's a long distance right there. It is. <laughs> it is. Yeah. My well, idea of a, uh, of a 5k before that was usually at the County fair when they were passing out hot dogs and beer and you know, you could walk it. So. so uh, well, fantastic. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, and let's, uh, let's kind of get into the, the meat of the show here with Tulsa about, uh, you know, maybe two or three minutes here on the story behind you getting into the military, kind of where you were, where, where you were living when you joined a little bit about the story about how you got into the military. You know, you've already been in what, seven, 17, some odd years, 17 and a half years. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Coming so, up on 18 in, in uh, March. So for how much, however much of a challenge it is, summarize kind of the career to date, and then we'll shift into some stories about service. Go ahead. Sure. So I, I joined the Navy in March. Um, I actually signed on the dotted line March 13, 2003. Um, really started on September 11th. I uh, still remember to this day, my dad had served, my brother had served, a number, a number of my uncles had served and friends. And it was nothing that I had ever done. And I don't want to say that I had had regret leading up to that, but it was one of those things that was in the back of my mind that I wished I had done. Mm -hmm. And September 11th happened, was uh, literally standing there holding our newborn, who was about four months old at, the, at that point, um, really wondering what the future looked like, like so many of us that ended up joining at that time, and really started having a conversation with myself and then eventually my wife about, you know, is, is it too late in, you know, my, my late 20s for me to go do this and, and do so as a reservist, or do I go active duty, and how does that impact my family, and what does that really look like? And uh, my wife, who is truly um, my, my biggest advocate and, and really just has been amazing, we spent a lot of time really talking about it. And she finally told me, she said, go do it. If it's something you want to do, we'll, we'll work it as a family and we'll get through it. So 
Um, really, at that point, made the decision it's going to stay Navy since really more of a Navy family with the, mm -hmm. a few ex uh, exceptions that I would question their sanity in making those decisions. <laughs> and uh, so I, I joined March of 2000, uh, 2003, um, shipped off to boot camp with my brother-in-law in tow, who joined right after me. He, he became a uh, 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 hospital corpsman and actually went over to the Marines to work with them. Oh, yeah. Went to boot camp together. He was my bunk mate. And I actually found myself enjoying it. I was sort of surprised that, you know, having owned my own business at that point and getting up at crazy hours and working crazy hours, I was sort of shocked that I was allowed to sleep till 6 a.m. and and had to go to bed at 10. So um, I still remember looking at my brother-in-law at graduation day asking if we could get a few more days just because the sleep was so good. But, uh, you know, at the same time, certainly, you know, the the, uh, the daytime made up for that, and it was definitely time to go home at that point. But at that point, I affiliated with uh, with one unit that I was with for a couple of years, and not long after that, that unit disbanded, and I got moved over to Saltcraft Unit 1. And I'm one of those those few uh, reservists that stayed with that entire unit all the way up till today, with the exception of a couple mobilizations, and really got to uh, continue to grow in that that unit and become more of an SME, and eventually picked up chief and now senior chief, and have just enjoyed it. Um, have have seen some of my greatest mentors retire ahead of me and miss them dearly, um, and and had the opportunity to to really help mentor some new sailors along and. Um, looking back is something that I'll, I would never change. Um, you know, even the mobilizations and the time away from family, as difficult as that is, it's stuff that's certainly shaped how I do things today, both on the civilian side and, and really how I look at my own family and uh, the appreciation that I have for everything around me, I think. You had a, a couple real quick follow-ups. One was um, we were, before we started recording, we were talking off the air. You've done a couple of deployments, right? Yes, it was, uh, yep, did, cool. go ahead. Did two deployments, one to Kuwait in 2007 with Navy Customs Battalion Sierra. And then I did a uh, deployment with a small boat unit. Mission stood up uh, right after the USS Cole to Al-Fujarah over in the United Arab Emirates, which I don't know if you can call that a deployment, staying in really nice <laughs> hotels and stuff. But right. uh, um, yep. did that mission for about eight and a half months in 2010 with Mezron 6. Were you in, in the Middle East in kind of the June, July, August time frame in either of those been. points? Yeah, okay. yeah. I was you... actually at um, uh, Ali Al-Salim, which is a, uh, a Kuwaiti Air Force base. Yeah. Um, I believe, if I'm remembering my geography, in, in northern Kuwait and is, um, yeah. was attached to Customs Battalion. And, and my job at that point being actually a uh, third class petty officer was taking soldiers, sailors, airmen, marine, coast guard, national guard, regardless who they were, they had to go through customs before they could go home. Want to make sure people aren't taking, you know, members of the military aren't taking things home that they should not be or bringing things on the airplane that we don't want on airplanes. So we put them through a customs inspection over there. And I actually ended up being probably the luckiest of the battalion. I got selected for the um, escort team. So my job was to take all of the service members, once they went through uh, customs inspection to the airport, put them on an airplane and send them home. And yeah. probably that, from a military perspective and how that has shaped my career, is probably the greatest greatest thing I've been able to be a part of thus far. Just, are you speaking of the, how giddy people get when they're about to head home? 
You know, it's funny. I look back at it, and there were there were times where folks were were, were you know some of our service members were giddy. There's there's no question about that. But um, it, it was it was sort of surreal. I, I think I think it was more relief um, yeah, yeah, for just yeah. about everybody. This was this was during the surge, and and you know every day was was a difficult day, especially up north in Iraq. And you know we had a, a lot of lot of uh, service members that had been there for extended periods of time. In some case. Some cases we had a, uh, a National Guard battalion that I think had been there for well over 15 months, and it, it's daunting at best for them to go through that. And I think a lot of it was, you know, I, I think it was relief more than anything else. But but to be a part of being able to thank them and send them home was life changing for me. Now you're gonna you're gonna have to yell at me if this is part of one of your one or two stories about what service meant to you. But I was wondering. I think I know we've had at least one other. Navy chief on the podcast. I was wondering if you, if you could take a second to talk about all, all the services have their, you know, their advancement kind of tier, the, the progression in rank where it becomes something different, right? So for the Navy, it's E60, E7, from first class petty officer to Navy chief. It's a big thing. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that means and what that meant to you becoming a Navy chief. You know, it's it's funny. There there isn't a day that goes by that I don't reflect on my season and actually use that in my decision making on how I do things in my uh, civilian employment, and uh, certainly still plays a big part in how I manage my um, my my teams both in and outside of the Navy. It it's life changing, and it really does uh, set you up for success if you embrace the process. Going from E six seven uh, becoming a, a chief in the Navy and going through that process is probably the most daunting process I've gone through or, or, or event that I've gone through in my life. Um, mm-hmm. it, it without a doubt took me out of every single comfort zone that I have ever been in or that I thought I was in and taught me taught me the ability to truly delegate um, how to manage that situation and stay on top of it. Um, and, and how to trust in your people to do that and, and even how to escalate, which is something on the civilian side that, that we deal with on a daily basis on our account. So mm-hmm. I, I think for me, it changed everything about my confidence and who I am and my ability to do my job and more importantly, how to mentor my teams in the process. And it, it changed my focus more than I ever thought it would and how I look at that and, and the mentorship aspect of, of the people that work for me and the opportunity to be a part of that and how important it is. And it's truly an honor to be in that situation that you can impact people, um, impact your sailors or impact um, your coworkers and um, hopefully in the process, better their lives and their families' lives. And, you know, I I sit back today and I look at what I went through during the season and and how it changed me and how how I have, you know, hopefully honored that process both in and out of the Navy. And um, it's something that I will, I'll never forget, that's for sure. And it's something that I, I still am able to sit down and, you know, Randy Nisnik, who I think you've talked to, and a number, number of other folks, we can get together and sit down over a beer, and we all have our <laughs> stories to tell. But there's something about having gone through that process that's unlike anything else. And, yeah. you know, it doesn't matter where you go when you come across another chief petty officer. Um, you have that story to share with one another, and it's it's unlike anything else that you have in life. Yeah, I could I could definitely kind of – uh, relate on the, uh, on like the com- commissioning process. I, I made it to E5, uh, on the enlisted side before I got a commission, but 
a similar sort of a thing where there is this monumental or a keystone or a capstone activity that happens that changes you as a leader and as a, 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 a military service member uh, that I don't know if it get certainly there has to be things that are similar in the in the civilian world. I just haven't encountered them. These kind of monumental things that you go through that change you and change how you engage with the people who work with you, because that specifically changes as well. Right. You you are changed both professionally and personally by these things. And so uh, I really resonate with you talking uh, about that. So th thanks for sharing that. And I guess this is now really the meat of the podcast, which is the Midwatch is about the the kinds of stories that any military service member will resonate with because it's about service and it's about these unique opportunities and uh, experiences that we have serving our country. And it sounds like you may have a, a story or two to share with us. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think for me, it, it goes back to Kuwait. You know, I arrived in country. I'd never left my family before. Went went and, and did my uh, workups and training in uh, uh, Virginia before we left. And, you know, the, the customs mission is not a difficult mission per se. And um, it was not something that, that I had ever anticipated I would have any issues with. I think at that point, the biggest concern I had was just being away from my family and, you know, having, you know, having been deployed, you, you probably get what I'm, I'm about to say with regards to the fear yeah. of the unknown and not necessarily the unknown about what we're about to walk into, but I think the unknown of what's going to happen back at home when we're not there to take care of our family. So that was my biggest, biggest thing going into that, that mission and, and that uh, deployment. What I found actually changed a lot about how I look at things. I spent a lot of time on the flight line at um, Kuwait City International Airport pretty much every <laughs> night for, for seven and a half months. And, you know, one of the things that we had to do when we would send a battalion or send anyone home was we had to wait for the plane to leave before we could go. And we would get them loaded up. And as you can imagine, by the time they got done with that and got every, everybody manifested and ready to go, you probably had an hour, hour and a half before um, everybody took off. But for, for me, um, it was the evenings at the airport that really changed my understanding of why I was there. And really the the overall impact of of it in general so i, I think every night there was a, a c-130 and or, or in some cases c-17 would land coming from up north from iraq and the air force did an amazing job of uh, bringing our service members who gave the ultimate sacrifice home and every night without fail we would have a plane come in if not multiple planes um, with service members who had given the ultimate sacrifice and the Air Force would bring them off with full honors. And that was really hard. I think the first night I remember seeing it, I, I, was, I was awestruck. And it really, really, really just, it, it sunk in immediately that, that I was in that, that part of the country with, with what was going on. And yeah, and it, as I like to say, I was in the rear with the gear, as people say, and, and I was, was fortunate to be in that position. Um, but that, that changed really everything that I had ever thought with regards to my own abilities to just be in that situation. I've never been somebody that's been able to stomach, you know, what, what I would call death at that point. And I'm seeing it in the, the most, honor, most honored way that you can see it with regards to the Air Force doing such amazing things for, for our fallen. And it changed me. It, it truly changed me. It's one of those things that even today... Um, I think about regularly and, and having seen that and witnessed it day after day, 
and understanding, you know, at least from my perspective, hopefully nothing I ever have to see from a member of my family, but having an understanding of, of what was actually happening and then trying to really, I guess, digest what was happening when that, that plane took back off, heading back to the States and how that impacted people. And um, it, it just, it really did change my outlook on a lot of things in my life and how I looked at family and friends and how appreciative I was to be in that situation and not having to live with that. I mean, I, I just can't imagine what so many people had to go through and I was truly in a situation where I was just truly able to to take all of that in and, and be a part of paying some of, being able to, uh, you know, being able to honor them in my way. And it may be a little bit cliche, but it, it was truly, truly, truly impactful. Yeah. Um, I may have to edit out some sniffles on my part over here because uh, <laughs> yeah, you definitely, you definitely got me with that one. And it's so funny. You mentioned the uh, seeing the air force folks doing what they do to make the logistics happen, but doing it and then in a way that reflects honor and reverence for, for what they're doing. Right. Um, yeah. It's, it's amazing. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie taking chance. Um, no, no. I had not seen it. I saw it probably two years after I came home from Kuwait and my wife had seen it before me and, and her and I had talked about, you know, my deployment and, you know, my, my stuff pales in comparison to the folks that were up north yeah. and, yeah. and those that were in Afghanistan, but it was impactful to me. And so we had talked about it a couple of times and she had me sit down and watch that movie. And I'll tell you what, if you want to see a movie and truly understand what happens behind the scenes when we lose a service member. Um, it, it, it is an incredible story and probably one of the most incredible stories to come out of, out of the war, in my opinion. I will, uh, I'll definitely check that out. And you may, you may have another story, but I had one other kind of follow-up that is a step down from how important it is you've already spoken to, but did it, can you talk to being halfway across the world from your family, right? You started it out with saying, being un, unsure about what's going to happen at home over the next six, seven, eight months. And for uh, when we were talking, I think before we started recording, you know, some of the army folks, they were doing a year and a half and national guard folks doing year and a half deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan. Can you, can you talk about what it feels like being a, a world away from your family, what that feeling is? Um, it's exhausting. <laughs> so I am the, if there's any such thing as a helicopter dad, my wife jokes with me, that's me. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm, I'm always worried about, you know, no trampolines, no motorized two wheel vehicles, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And probably, okay. as I said earlier, I'm very risk averse. And, uh, that, that's definitely my father coming out of me and how I was raised. So, you know, stepping away from my family and, having to not be there to take care of the things that I would normally take care of was, it was unlike anything I can describe, actually. I mean, it, I had, I had literally been the guy to do everything. If the car needed fixed, I would take it to get it fixed. If we needed to get an insurance, uh, you know, an insurance quote, that was me. And I had to literally hand everything to my wife and, and say, you've got this. Um, I'll see you in seven and a half, eight months plus my training time. And, you know, I'll, I'll, we'll stay in touch. We'll do this. We'll do that. And, and, and it'll all be okay. 
thankfully she was she was amazing through both deployments and you know we we really never missed a beat I'll, I'll tell you the other thing that that made it easier but also made it harder is just the ability to communicate i certainly can't imagine what our predecessors went through in vietnam yeah. and korea yeah. and world war ii i mean you had to wait you know months to get a letter in some cases I actually had a BlackBerry with me and BlackBerry International for 20 bucks a month allowed me to communicate with my wife regularly, um, if not, you know, hourly to, to check in and see how things were going. And it was, it was a wonderful tool to have, but I will tell you, it was also really, really difficult because there were times where I couldn't reply, which created a lot of angst on her part with, yeah. with the yeah. lack of response. Um, as a matter of fact, I injured my back in, in uh, Fujar in 2010. And uh, when I got off the boat, after a mission that we were on and, and was pretty much laid up for a few days, they actually, my uh, uh, chief corpsman put me on, I don't even remember what he put me on, but it knocked me out for probably about 12 <laughs> hours. Uh-huh. And this whole time, my wife hadn't heard from me and I didn't get an opportunity to let her know in advance that um, I was going to be out of touch for 12 hours. So, you know, she's over here having the same same type of angst that that I would have about being away. And, you know, I, I think if anything good comes out of that and you know, I don't know if this was the case for everybody. I know everybody responds differently. It definitely brought us closer as a family and, and appreciating what we have in our time together. It certainly had an impact on both of our daughters with appreciating um, yeah. the the differences of being a military family versus not. I hear you. Thank Really appreciate you sharing that. Do you have another story that, that really means service and what you'll take into the future with you that you want to share? Not necessarily a story. It's just the just the the brotherhood and sisterhood that I, I get out of being a chief and, and being in the Navy. I think I mentioned before, I, I've just had some incredible mentors who I still talk to regularly today, including Josh Rojas, although he's an officer, he's in the ward room. We'll, we, we still consider him a member of our chief's mess back at ACU one. And, um, you know, Josh and, and a few other chiefs that, that have, have really been there to guide me over the years or, or a group that I still talk to regularly, um, if not daily in some cases. And, you know, it, it's that's probably the biggest story that I have, actually, outside of my time in Kuwait and the story I already told. I mean, I, I have developed relationships and friendships that are second to none. And, you know, really a group of guys and, 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 and gals within, in, in the Chiefs Mess that would do anything for me and, and likewise me for them. And just having that is probably, if I get anything out of my service, that is probably the one thing that that I will will take to my grave and know that I have, and it, it's something that I'm a part of that that I will never have taken away from me, and and just just really has been life changing. Yeah, it's funny. Maybe uh, maybe that's something that the service that military service does for the people who go through it is teach us what a at the very least what a an important relationship feels like you know an important professional relationship should feel like somebody who relies on you and has tangible connection to you doing your job um maybe that environment teaches us what that relationship is supposed to feel like you know because we see it and there's no choice everyone has to do that and when you exit the military you're looking for those kind of relationships and you cherish the ones you already have but you also look for people who are measuring up to that same level of commitment that you've experienced before. Yeah, no, no question. And I will, I will say that 
that's one thing that's been pretty neat about JLL. You know, you get to build the relationships within the, the organization across multiple accounts and business lines. And, you know, we, we, we have a ton of military in the organization. We definitely do on our account. And you're absolutely right. And, and we pick, you know, it, it, if we're in the Navy, we're always picking on the Air Force guys. They do the same thing with us, go start all that stuff. And that's just, that's just the fun part of the relationships. But, you know, at the end of the day, that time spent and the ability to have those discussions and really think through how you would handle things before working with these other members of your team who know exactly what you're thinking changes your ability to do your job and to do it well and really does set you up for success in many respects with how you can have those conversations, sometimes difficult conversations, um, but you know that who you're talking to is able to have those conversations too because you know, at, at the end of the day, we've all been been through something that that changes how we look at, at what we do, and I think it keeps us a little bit more grounded in how we approach it. Excellent stuff. That that transitions us into kind of the last part of the interview. But being being Navy, uh, as I've talked with the other Navy folks who've been on the podcast, or at least recently, is I'll, I'll wait for the next person, a, a ship driver of some sort, or somebody who's stationed on a ship, because I still have to tell the story about what a bummer it is to leave port on a ship for six months and like, you know, leave your family on the pier kind of stuff. It's going to be the sure. most depressing. It's going to be the most depressing episode of the Midwatch ever, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a story that has to be told. Sure, <laughs> so, absolutely. Uh, well, well, tell me this. We, you mentioned a little bit about uh, what you do for for Jones Lang LaSalle. So I'm wondering if maybe you could talk about that just real quick, kind of what your current role specifically is and what your, uh, to, to whatever level appropriate, of course, but talk about what you specifically do for us, what you're most passionate about. And are there some things that you're, you may have already really answered this. Are there some things that are clear parallels that the military prepared you for? I, I got to go back just a little bit to, to give you the whole story. So my, my career, I don't want to say it's, it's um, a one-off, but it, it certainly has, has been very, 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 very uh, quick. So I joined J uh, JLL, Jones Lang LaSalle, in 2015. I started as a facility manager, a maintenance manager, and have since moved five different roles in the last oh. five years. Um, it, it's been absolutely crazy the amount of change that we've seen on our account over the years. And I've been fortunate enough to be a part of it. I'm now senior director of operations on the account. And, you know, we've got close to 2,600 headcount at the end of the year on our account and just seen incredible growth, even during the pandemic where we continue to grow daily and truly honored to be a part of this team. I think for me, the biggest parallel I can draw with regards to our account and the military is just the, the requirements and the, the tempo. It's a very fast paced account. There, there's not a lot of downtime. You know, we work odd hours, and if if one of our uh, one if, if uh, part of one of our client teams is impacted, then we're typically on the phone in the middle of the night. But it's it's a very similar type mentality as the as the the military, and certainly as the Navy, with regards to just being ready all the time and not being afraid to be in that position. And uh, probably the, the thing I'm most passionate about is the team that we've built. I've watched the account go from a couple hundred to um, over 2,000 now and, and have seen just incredible people do incredible things and grow within the organization. And 
Um, you know, we've had had members of our team go from being a, a level one tech all the way up to senior maintenance manager running an entire organization of 75 people. And it's incredible to be a part of that, to be able to see that and um, continue to uh, be there to witness that on a daily basis. And that there isn't a day that goes by, and that's not to say that there aren't bad days. There, there are <laughs> days that you need the day to end and uh, I need a new one, but um, there's not a day that goes by that's not different. And there's certainly not a day that goes by that I'm not, not excited to get to my desk every morning and be a part of what we're doing. I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we're impacting a lot of people in what we do. We're certainly impacting the firm in general and truly, truly just blessed to be a part of it. Fantastic. John Blasdell, excellent interview. Thanks. Thank you. Appreciate Thank you, so you much. having me on. Absolutely. And, and stick around for a second as I, as I end the show, definitely want to wrap up off the air here, but to the, to the audience, hopefully you enjoyed, uh, enjoyed the interview. I appreciate John joining up here and, and us kind of sharing stories like this. Make sure you're sharing the, uh, the podcast with your coworkers and kind of spread the good word. So again, John, fantastic stuff. Thank you so much for being part of the show. Thank you. You've been listening to Jones Lang LaSalle's The Midwatch Podcast with Dan Ettinger. Look for us on the web and social media, and please share with friends and family. Thanks for your support. Like us wherever you listen to this podcast and stay tuned.